a lot of I hang around on travel Twitter a lot with you know people that travel halfway across the world to see something interesting, and I'm going. Yeah, you can definitely see something interesting if you travel halfway around the world. But remember, people are traveling halfway around the world to see something interesting that's 20 minutes from you. Welcome to the Humans of the Trail podcast. I am excited to be here, finally introducing the show as Humans of the Trail. This felt like a ridiculous idea a few months ago, and I'm really glad I've taken the leap and done it, and I really hope you enjoy what I've got planned for the show in the future. I'm not going to go into that today, but the show has evolved so much since it started, In particular, my interests around the outdoor conversations we're having and in particular the long distance hiking theme, I just wanted to move beyond it and into more of a trail focused show. And I am overwhelmed by the ambition I have for this and the things I want to do with it. But Rome was not built in a day. And with that, all I want to do today is simply introduce this podcast as the Humans of the Trail podcast. So... With that aside, let's get into today's episode. Today, I have Barefoot Backpacker on the show. Barefoot Backpacker, or known as short for BB, is a lifelong global traveller enjoying little-known destinations, dark tourism and long-distance trails. Big tick for the show, right up my street. We're a really interesting chat, and I really enjoyed speaking with BB about a number of topics, including their backstory, Uh, of the long distance walk across Britain, curious and interesting places to travel. And the conversation I really enjoyed the most was their experience traveling as someone who identifies as non-binary and asexual. I thought that perspective was worth exploring and I'm really glad that I asked BB that question. We had a great episode and I will be recording another episode with them in the future. BB has a lot more to say and I would love to listen to it. So there will be another one coming when we get man- get around to recording. Uh, I would hope to have actually recorded that already, but I got a bit behind this week, so I had to postpone, postpone those plans, but it will be coming. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Humans of the Trail podcast. Where did that adventurous streak come from? And I'm not talking about long distance hiking, I'm just talking about the 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 and when I say adventure, I'm talking about living as you are, like living really, really authentically as you, because that's one thing that strikes me about you is you are not afraid to just be you. Um, I don't think you'll mind me saying this, but you are incredibly unique compared to a lot of people. You do not shy away from being yourself. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I'd really love to know kind of where that started. And was that something that you always had within you? Or was that sort of a journey to get there? I think so. I mean, it's partly why I'm in therapy. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, certainly for the travel side of it, when I was a, a kid, I used to devour maps. I used to just spend hours reading maps and encyclopedias and go, ooh, 
what's on the other side of this page? What's on the other side of this border? So I've always had that interest in the unknown and the the, the far away. Um, as for being unique, it's it's partly because it's the easiest way to be because I don't have to always pretend to be something else. I don't have to always, you know, it's like living a lie. Well, it's not a lie, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's like acting. I could never really be an actor because I'm always conscious of this is not real. And it's just far easier to be yourself, I guess, rather than to try and be someone else. And that's kind of the way I've, I've, I've always done it. The problem comes is that everyone else is trying to be someone and, I've always stood out. I've always been a bit unusual because I've not striven for the same things as everyone else has. Um, I mean, even now, I'm absolutely not representative of my demographic, shall we say. No, you're not. And I think no. that's that in itself is that's what really interested me about you. So when you said, oh, I want to be on the, the podcast, um, I'd, obviously, I'd seen you online and I think either you'd followed me or I'd followed you. So we sort of, uh, you know, come across each other. Um, and you've always struck me as somebody who doesn't fit that a the hiking demographic, um, but also the sort of demographic for your age as well. You seem to live a, a you seem to live a younger life. Some you know you're you're yes. you're free from you seem unburdened, and I, I might be completely wrong with these assumptions, so please correct me. But you seem unburdened by the usual responsibilities of life. Um, and you are free to travel and, and kind of work where you want and, and do the things you want. And that, that seems really interesting because essentially you've created for yourself a life by your own design. Um, may I ask, do you, uh, you, you left a job in 2018 from my research. Are you still working for yourself now? Uh, no, that was a really bad idea. I left my, I left a, where I used to work in 2018 because they made me redundant and they made me redundant, not because my job ceases to exist, but because the only jobs available doing what I was doing all, re all required management responsibilities. And my response to that was <laughs> the, 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 um, the, the, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of like the um, redundancy interview thing was yeah. very quick. Excellent. It was me going to my, yeah, I'm, yeah, that's it yeah. kind of thing. It, it was me, it was me and my line manager speaking and, and she said, uh, well, could you do this job? I said, yes. And she said, do you want to do this job? And I said, God, no. <laughs> and she said, well, that was a really quick exit interview. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I mean, I'd been working there for 20 yeah. years and I was, wow. you know, bored. Yeah. Um, so I, I took time to travel. And the idea was I would travel. I would, you know, make money from writing, make money from podcasting and everything like that. I spent my entire redundancy um, payout on beer and travel. And I didn't do any kind of um, what you might call preparation for doing work on my own. I just went, oh, I've got so much money. I'll just, you know, it, it doesn't matter. And then it did matter. And at the start of 2020, I went, hmm, this hasn't gone well. Might need a job. And then the pandemic hit. And I went, well, that's made it easier for me. <laughs> Um, because it meant I physically couldn't travel and I physically couldn't spend all this money. Uh, and so I looked around for a, a real job, real job, and um, got another job working in data analytics, which is my career background. And now I'm doing it all again. It's great. Okay. That's interesting. Um, so 
you yeah Billy, I, and <laughs> I, I spend my i spend my days basically shouting at google analytics going why are you doing that yeah um i know that feeling with uh with anything that's systems related um that's curious so i i was under the impression that you kind of work for yourself but that, that actually adds a, a level of interest now because you managed to fit a very adventurous life um with overseas travel and domestic travel and walking long distance paths and doing all the things you love around your work. How do you fit that in? Is it sort of you take uh, extended kind of breaks of annual leave or career gaps? Do you just squeeze it into the weekends? How do you fit in your adventure? Um, The first time I did this, I had a career break. This was about eight or nine years ago. So I had a year of it was supposed to be a year of traveling. It didn't turn into a year of traveling. Um, but I certainly did a lot of travel during that period. And that's when I went to places like Central Asia and West Africa. One of the sort of the areas where I couldn't really do it in two weeks. So I had to spend a larger amount of time. But most of the travels that I do are, um, I don't take days off, uh, essentially. So, you you know, I, I don't have, oh, I need to do something. I'll take a day off. I save all my annual leave for big blocks Mm -hmm. so what i'll usually do is and taking advantage of bank holidays easter is a very good time for this um so i I may have like three or four two-week holidays in a year so that's that's now Um, your your travel time to sort of get away do an extended trip and then get back and save for the next one essentially essentially yes and the nature of my travels is that my trips tend to be quite intensive so, but and what I will often do is if I leave work on the Friday, I will go straight to like an airport or a overnight bus. And then usually I arrive back on either the Sunday late afternoon, early evening, or potentially even overnight on the Sunday and back on Monday straight into work. Um, this is easier now because I work from home. But back in the day, I used to work in an office. And so turning up to an office slightly tired with a backpack yeah and then going straight into a day's work is i'm not going to recommend it but it worked for me i can imagine and and the kind of travel that you do then um and i'm talking sort of more more around uh international travel in particular here um it's not not a topic we talk about too much in the show so i'm keen keen to go there how do you travel do you sort of just take a backpack and go and see what you find along the way do you have a plan what what's kind of your approach to it in essence, I don't plan it in the sense that what I plan is I make sure that wherever I go is, quote, interesting, unquote. Everywhere is interesting, but I want to make it interesting enough for me to visit. So it has to be something that fires my nodules and also planning how to get there. Aside from that, what Certainly when I, I went around Southeast Asia for three weeks, a few years, like one of my first solo backpacking trips in my current um, persona, and I had about 10 or 11 different journeys planned out. So I knew that if I spent too long in one place, this is where I would go next. If I got bored in one place, this is where I could go next. So I, ha- I had 11 journeys planned. In the event, I did none of them because when I've, you know, I, I've kind of like, oh, you know what? I'm not that far from this place. Let's go there. Um, I In the autumn of 2019, I did an interrail trip around Europe, which is, you know, obviously what an, an early 40-year-old something does. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And there was one day where I was in Liechtenstein because I always had this passion. I always had this desire to see a, an international football match between two countries that had nothing to play for. So I watched Liechtenstein play Armenia, obviously. Uh, and I had ideas of where to go next, So I post, but I didn't have a plan. So I posted on Twitter a poll saying, should I go north or should I go south? When I woke up the next morning, the poll's 50-50. Exactly 50-50. And I went, cheers for that. Um, so, yeah, there have been times when I've woken up in the mornings and not knowing which country I'll be in that evening. Never mind what hotel, never mind what town, what country I will be in that evening, um, which scares the living pants off half of my friends and my mother. Mm. But it doesn't doesn't worry you. You're happy just to travel and just see, to kind of go, go where mm. the wind takes you. Yes. So yeah. one thing that really interested me that you uh, mentioned was in your notes to me with dark tourism. Now, oh, yeah. for me, when somebody has dark tourism, I think going to North Korea um, or going to Chernobyl, is that kind of what you mean? What, yeah. what are the kind of most interesting dark tourism, you know, destinations that you have been to? I mean, I've been to Chernobyl. Um, I've been to the Aral Sea in Uzbekistan. Um, I've been to, you know, Cambodia's killing fields, things like that. Um, I've been to, more Central European death camps than we really need to talk about. Um, my reasoning behind... Oh, and of course, obviously, battlefields. Battlefields counts as dark tourism. Where it comes from, basically, is... An in, I'm, I spent a year and a half at university, and my subject was history. Um, and I've always had this passion for history. And as I said earlier, everywhere is interesting. And one of the reasons that everywhere is interesting is because most places have a kind of historical reason to be. It's just unfortunate that history is full of humans being not particularly nice to each other and humans not being particularly nice to the environment, sometimes at the same time. So things like that intrigue me, I suppose, is, is the polite way of saying it. And also there's a and it doesn't really I don't know if this counts as dark tourism, but I visited a country, Timor Leste. Timor Leste. Oh my Timor Leste, yes. Okay. Not many people have been to Timor Leste. No, I'm not even sure I've heard of Timor Leste. So where's Timor Leste? Well, it's and I'd like to think my half of an eye. That point in geography is reasonably acceptable. (laughs) It's half of an island in most of which is Indonesia. So, um, it's it was um, colonised by Indonesia in a sense. It, It was a Portuguese colony. And the other half of the island was a Dutch colony. And then when everything became independent, Indonesia invaded it. The reason I'm mentioning it in dark tourism is because when I was at university, it was the, you know, core celebre of students. It was um, Timor Leste Freedom Now. This was, I think, 1994 when that was um, popular. Um, it became independent in about 2000. And so when I was plotting my trip around the world, I figured, oh, yeah, Timor Leste is just there. It's just north of, of Australia. I'm going to Australia. I want to go to Indonesia. Let's go to Timor Leste and see what it's about. Because in my head, I was associating it with all of the student agitation that was uh, um, a, a, a big cry in the, in the mid-90s. Okay. I've got a question. So you worked in your previous job before you um, let go, made redundant for 20 years. And then you had this trip around the world, drinking beer, 
seen lots of countries, having a fantastic time. Before that, had you done a lot of traveling? Was that your sort of first major experience of just going somewhere for an extended period of time? I've always done traveling. Uh, I remember I used to have pen pals in the 90s. Oh, yeah. I think they're, they're, are they even a thing anymore? Do do, do youngsters? Well, they're not a thing. Well, I mean, what happened with me is quite a few of my pen pals came online and discovered the internet about the same time I did in the mid to late 90s. And I've not written a letter since because I don't need to because they're just there and I can, you know, email them, instant message them, um, discord them, tweet them. them. Yeah. I've never called them. (laughs) Don't be ridiculous. (laughs) Sorry. I don't do voice. Um, yes. So, I mean, so I, I had a a period of, you know, traveling to meet my pen pals. Um, one of my pen pals ended up dating for a bit and we did traveling together, including an interrail trip around Southwest Europe in 2000, which is responsible for one of the, probably the earliest travel blogs on the internet. It's still there. It looks as bad as it did in 2000. Oh, wow. Okay. What's, Um, um, can you, can you drop the URL for that? Uh, I can't, I'll have to see exactly how it's structured, um, because it it was, it's on a, it's on a different website and I don't know how easily accessible it Ah, is, but yes, parts of it exist on my current blog. Um, so I think it is accessible through there, but yes, um, I occasionally relate to it because it's funny. (laughs) It's funny in a cute way. And also at the time I went, you know, it'd be really good if someone went online and, and posted information about these places. But why would they? Because guidebooks exist. And yeah. why would people go on the internet when they've got a guidebook? Mm. Mm. How wrong that we were. turned out well, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I, so I've been traveling since then. Um, my first solo trips were a bit hit and miss. Mm. But um, in 2012, I did a few big trips. And that really got me the taste for it. Yeah. And then I had that career break in 2014 where I went to quite a few places. And then I went to a few places between then and when I left my old job, you know, sort of the two week trips. And then I had several adventures between 2018 and 2020 in places that aren't generally visited by people. Cause that's one of my, I mean, another one of my niches is yeah. I go to places so you don't have to. Yeah, and what what I I noticed as well is you don't you you like to avoid the bucket list destinations. So kind of spoken about the places that you go, which is sort of dark tourism places and off the beaten path places. You know, destinations that you know most people, uh, including myself, uh, will probably not know of. What other kind of nightmare destinations for you to go to? Where would you not want to go? I have an anti-bucket list Perfect. What's your anti-bucket? places. Well, half of them are small hot islands because okay. um, I can't swim. Right, I can't okay. swim and I'm not married. Right. So the idea <laughs> of being in a small hot island yeah. with nothing to do but dive and swim, mm-hmm. surrounded by honeymooning couples, mm-hmm. does not appeal to yeah, me. Understandable. Mauritius. Yeah. <laughs> Seychelles. Half the Caribbean. <laughs> um, there are a couple of countries that I've no desire to visit but not for the reasons you think like north korea is not on my list because it's and i don't know how to phrase this correctly but it's too safe as in i can't i don't like being told what to do Mm. that's the basic bottom line i don't like authority i have friends that are surprised genuinely surprised that i've not been arrested shot or deported Mm. yet 
So North Korea is not a place for me. Um, and there's a few countries where I'm not keen on going because I can see similar things easier and cheaper elsewhere. Where, where, where do you mean? Uh, things like... Um, One, I mean, one country is Niger in West Africa, mm. which is, you know, it's got a lot of history. It's got a lot of culture, but it's also, you know, got a lot of civil war. And there are countries around it where I can see similar things safer and less expensively. Angola's a bit like that as well, um, from my research when I was looking into it a few years back. Um and on my West Africa trip, I had that issue in Togo because I thought Benin was one of the greatest countries in the world. And then I went to Togo and it went, well, this is like Benin, but not as good. So, yeah, so there's that sort of thing. But a lot of my anti-bucket list is also, um, it's concepts, not just countries. So it's things like, I've no desire to climb Kilimanjaro. I've no desire to go to Everest Base Camp. I've no desire to go to Antarctica. So, so things that are very, very common sort of bucket list ticks just yes. completely off the cards for you. Yeah, I, I just I like bungee jumping. I, I, I've no desire to do bungee jumping. And one of my good friends has posted just in the last couple of days on Instagram about how she did the whole, you know, the um, Sydney Harbour Bridge climb. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm going, that's really good for you. Yeah, not for you. I'm not doing yeah. that. Fear, fear of heights or just... Versus uh, oh, yeah. sort of possible death. Yeah, fear of heights. Fear of heights, fear of, um, well, as I say, I can't swim either. So, you know, a fear of heights above a bit of water. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I, I crossed, I crossed over the bridge between um, Zimbabwe and, well, Zambia and Zimbabwe, um, that uh, Victoria Falls Bridge, where I was, at the previous day, I was in um, Zambia in the Victoria Falls National Park looking at the people jumping off that bridge. And I went, that's really cute. That's really, really great. I'm glad you're doing that. Yeah. So if the, uh, if then I I walked across the bridge and looked down where they jumped and I went, yeah, no, (laughs) if the snapping bungee cord doesn't get you, it's going to be the water at the bottom that (laughs) that gets you. Yes. Yeah. It's not that deep a river either. There's a lot of rocks down there. Yeah. Oh, okay. All all the the, the rocks on the the shallow river, (laughs) one or the other. No, it's understandable. (laughs) Uh, okay. That's, that's really interesting. So, um, one question I've got then, obviously around the world, there are going to be cultures that are not going to ex- accept the fact that you do not fit the standard mold of being a, you know, either male or female white traveller. Now, you identify as um, non-binary and asexual. Have you mm-hmm. had any experiences globally? And I want to talk about sort of experiences in the UK of that as well at some uh, shortly, but I'll go globally first, where you have felt in danger because of how you identify? Not yet. No? Um, have you had to avoid so two new ask- countries because of that as well? And that's another interesting question. Um, I'm going to take these two things separately. Um, yeah, sure. Because I haven't, I haven't travelled that much openly non-binary. Okay. Um, or rather that, well, I mean, I've always travelled looking quite and presenting quite unique um but so people have always sort of seen me from afar and gone what on earth is that 
Um, but I was doing that before I discovered what a non-binary identity was. So I don't know if I can answer that with hindsight. Have I ever felt safe doing, have I felt unsafe doing that? Not yet, but that's partly because I wasn't paying attention, I think. Um, the asexuality is a different issue. And one of the problems, it's not a problem, one of the things with asexuality is that if you're, for example, um, a gay couple walking down the street, it's quite easy to be identified as a gay couple because, you know, you'll be walking down the street, you'll be holding hands, you'll be, you know, PDAs, that sort of thing. Being asexual isn't as obvious because all they see when they look at me is a solo traveller. Now, where it gets a bit trickier is more in the, it's not so much, I don't feel so much worried about this, but it can get very irksome is because a lot of the places that I go to have a strong from family culture. So I will, I have this happened in Uzbekistan a lot. And I think most of the time it's people being genuinely curious. It's, oh, where's your wife? Why aren't you traveling with your wife? Where's your children? And I'm going, but I don't have any of those. Why not? Someone like you, you easily find one. No, it's not what I, I don't want to. It's it's easier just to say that either I'm not looking at the moment or when I was in West Africa, I made sure that the first picture on my camera was a picture of a female friend back home. So I basically lied and said, that's my girlfriend. Is that something you did because of it was just easier or was it something you did because of you were like fearful of repercussions within that country? Um, I did it because it was easier, but I think if I was some, if I was probably gay, then I would be doing it because it would be more safe. Um, I don't feel unsafe being asexual as much as I would feel unsafe being gay. Because my, my assumption but, yeah. would be that within a lot of cultures and even us, like anything other than, um, you know, being in a monogamous, monogamous relationship and being straight. So anything other than that is considered queer. Um, yes. So if you were to kind of say, I'm non-binary and asexual, suddenly you've moved outside of that bracket and you're just surely, because I, as I say, like I think a lot of people see it seen as gay, even though, even though you're not. So, yes. so has but that's that's so far not been a problem because you've managed to mask it with yes i mean simple tactics like having a picture of a you know female yeah. friend on your phone which seems really yeah yeah i mean people do assume i'm gay um i mean even where i used to work the canteen staff said i was as camp as kenny everett and i reminded them of of him which i i i I have no objection to it. I think that's quite a cool comparison. Um, but it's interesting that they're making that comparison. And certainly because I, you know, I usually have painted toenails. Um, there have been people that have picked up on that and directly asked. So, um, and but you, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't hide certain parts of my identity, but equally I'm more, more, careful about it than i would like to be sure um you, the non-binary identity the actual the 
I was going to say the the active non-binary identity. I'm doing that more. Um, of, so last year I went to France with a friend of mine and I was, I wasn't quite wearing, well, no, they wear all feminine, femme clothes, but they weren't, you know, I'm not talking dresses. I'm talking crop tops and long shirts, that sort of thing. So, um, and it felt comfortable and no one picked up on it, but that might've been just because it was France. Can I explore that feeling of comfortable? Um, so do you feel when you wear, you know, crop tops and skirts, dresses and open toe shoes and things like that, things that you want, basically you, you see, you think that looks great. I want to wear it, but it's not sort of traditional male attire, you know, jeans, <laughs> t-shirt, you know, trainers. Do you suddenly feel like you when you wear that? Or is there a- I've been told that I look more comfortable and I've been told when I've taken pictures and when I've been in pictures looking like that, I've been told I look more um, self-confident and kind of, and this is a weird thing to say, taller because I, I will, you know, sort of stand up straight more. I'll be more comfortable with, I mean, it's not even something I'm naturally, I, I'm conscious of doing, but I will appear more like I'm happy to be myself. Most of the time these days, just for the record, I'm wearing dungarees. So because dungarees rock. That, except when you want to go to the toilet. You say that other people perceive you as kind of look feel looking more relaxed and staying taller. Do you feel that within yourself? Um yes, I think so. Uh, and certainly when I look at myself I'm thinking, yeah, this isn't working. And then I'll change it to something else that's a bit more sort of, you know, gender neutral and I go, yeah, that works a bit better. Um, you know, I, 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 I mean, jeans are gender neutral, but I, I don't often wear them because they make me look too masculine. And was there a point for you where you were wearing masculine clothing and started to move, move over to gender neutral clothing? Or is it something you've always kind of dabbled with and experiment, kind of experimented with and been quite comfortable, for, you know, from an early age with that? Or was there a point where you're like, actually, I want to wear something that isn't isn't masculine clothing no it's definitely more of a point i think well i think it's one of those things that because what the pandemic did was encourage a lot of people to turn inwards and also yeah, that's an interesting point. i had a lot more chats with people in the same position as me um discord mainly um it was more a case of hang on a minute i've been having these feelings for a while what do they mean? And then coming across people that were having the same feelings and going, oh, oh, that would make sense. Oh, and that explains something that happened four years ago. That explains feelings I had eight years ago. And so it was it was more a case of not realizing it until all of the pieces fitted together and then going, oh, it all makes sense now. Why couldn't it have made sense 10 years ago? That's really interesting. So was, um, sorry, I'm, I'm completely distracted from the long distance hiking thing, but I'm really that's all right. We've we've got plenty really of time. Interested. So, was there a? How am I? So I had a question there, and it's on the tip of my tongue, and then I just distracted myself from my own question. You? No, lost it. I have to edit this bit out. All good though. Okay, so I'm going to. <laughs> you do raise a drop down in your face as well. Um, right. So going back to yeah. So I'm going to bring it to hiking now. So. Okay. Have you then had any experiences within 
sort of the outdoor and hiking community, which, as you know, is a lot of people, a lot of like, let's say male men in particular in the hiking community is white guys. They look like this. They have beards. They wear shirts and they have, you know, T-shirts. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm, I'm stereotypical, out, like, outdoorsy guy. I, you know, I wear jeans t- and T-shirts and jumpers. And then you come along. Let's say you come over the hill and you're wearing whatever the fuck you want to wear. And that's awesome. But have you had any experiences where people have sort of glanced sideways at you and muttered something or sort of not, not wanted to engage with you, even though you've been quite happy to engage with them? Or has generally the reception to, you know, being who you authentically are, been positive? Most of the people that I know who are hikers are female. Okay. Is that by design? I think it's just that most of the people I know are female. Um, like, I, I, I've actually calculated that 70% of my active friends are women. Which is, again, revealing... But anyway, um, so I don't think the questions ever come up in my hiking circles, um, but most of the hikes I do on my own anyway. And most of the time I'm hiking, I'm hiking where there aren't that many other people around. Um, So usually when I'm hiking there, if I pass someone, it's literally just a friendly wave because it's like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Um. So it's never really cropped up, I guess, which is, I mean, it's good in one way for me, but it's um, probably not representative of most people's hiking experiences. I know like a a couple of my, the people that I follow on Instagram and Twitter are black women hikers. And I know that they've had many issues on the hills with other hikers that have passed them and gone, what are you doing here? This isn't for you. So. Mm. Okay. It's interesting, but not, not so far hasn't been too much of an issue, but I guess if you're hike with the way you travel, I guess that's probably the way you long since hike as well, where you pick paths that are lesser known routes that are lesser known. Am I right? It doesn't always work like that, but yeah, yes. See, we're um, a, type, a small, a small nation and you're going to pass, you know, well, yes. Um, yes. Um, and certainly, I mean, I've lived in both Glasgow and Sheffield and there's a lot of hikes around both that are incredibly popular, but also if you hike long enough, you will escape them. So, I mean, Sheffield's a good example because obviously everybody climbs up Kinder Scout, but there's enough paths in the area of Kinder Scout to be able to find a little space of it on your own um there's just generally little little spots of really popular bits and yeah. then if you just get away from that yeah you don't need to travel far on kinder to get lost in the vastness oh, yeah. of it uh, <laughs> lost is i mean i i did a whole thing um i did a podcast on kinder oh, scout yeah. and i did point out the kinder triangle mm. Which is like the Bermuda Triangle, yeah. but foggier. Yeah, um, it sucks you in, doesn't it? I've um, it does. I had an experience um, some years ago with a friend that took up there, a first time hiker. That oh, we we'll go to Kinder Downfall. We got to Kinder Downfall. It's getting dark. I was like, and this this was with, with a complete lack of wisdom and ignorance. It's like let's cut through the middle in the middle of winter. Yep. Um, we followed a path, and uh, the path disappeared. And then suddenly, I had no idea yep. where I was. Um, a few hours later, we emerged out on another path somewhere, and 
saw the glow of Edale in the in the distance and sort of Trump kind of traipsed through some hills to get to the pub. <laughs> and he looked at me and went, yep, that's where I'm walking with you again. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much yeah. exactly what I did the first time. Yeah. I, I had a, the first time I wild camped up there, um, oh, yeah. which was an experience in itself. Little tip. If you buy a tent, set it up in your house before <laughs> you go hiking with it. Well, what happens? So Otherwise, share, share, that, you end up... share that story. Um, that was that was a fun time. So I've got this new tent, and I thought, oh, it'll be fine. I'll I'll just stick it up. There's no room in my living room. I'll you know, let's just go up the hill and see what happens. So I went up the hill, and it was early April, if memory serves. It was a really nice day, but then when the sun went down, it got really cold. Unfortunately, I reached a nice little wild camping spot out of nowhere, just south of Crowden, and put the tent up, and then realised that it made no sense and i'd never actually put this tent up before and i'd never put up a tent that was anything like this before and i had three tent like it was literally um i've still got it now it's it's literally three poles and it made no sense where they went (laughs) okay and it had an inner um an inner tent thing which i then had to hook onto the to the things in the outer shell except that by that time my hands were so cold i couldn't hook it and i couldn't work out like which direction it was in and it was getting dark and I already have dyspraxia and I, you know, nothing makes sense from a spatial awareness point of view. So I ended up sleeping in purely the out, purely inside the outer uh, layer of a tent in early April in the Peak District. Uh, at that point, I realized that also I'd brought my camping stove, but no matches. <laughs> uh, and my power bank had almost discharged because of the um, damp and cold conditions. I did not have a particularly good sleep that night. Um, And I basically walked the rest of the way from there back to Edale in about twice as much clothing as I'd started the journey in. Um, And that's when I hit Kinder Downfall and went, oh, no, I'll go this way because it's a shortcut. Getting lost on Kinder Scout, traipsing through shin depth mud and then coming across a path that went oh there's a cliff here yeah as well but at least by then like i knew, my, my I knew kind of where i was yeah yeah you're on the path yeah. like ah okay this this is good at least I, this is a path and there's a cliff so i'm on the right side of it yeah that sounds very yes similar. and then i know because um, yes. oh, we, so we'd hiked you... up that way a few a few a few weeks earlier so i recognized the spot uh, that was an interesting hike as well um Ooh, let's go let's go for a hike on Kinder Scout. Okay. Why are the winds 45 miles an hour? Why is it snowing? Why have you taken us here through in a named storm? Oh, this is really fun. This is You've spoken to Becky the traveler, haven't you? I have, yeah. Oh, was it with, was it with Becky? It was with Becky. Yeah. So she's she's up there pretty pretty much skipping across the footpaths on Kinder Scout and me and our other friend Joe are just there going, is she mad? Like, like, how is she doing this in this? This is a, this is like, this is a named storm. Why are we up here in a named storm? So rewind for me then. When was your first outdoor experience camping and do you know, being a sort of UK outdoorsy person? Did you have, can you put a pin on when that might've been sort of exposure to going, you know, camping, for instance, let's start there. Um, 
I mean, that was that incident on um, in Crowden was the first time I'd been wild camping With, on my own. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously, I'd always been outdoorsy. I'd, I've always liked walking, and I've always walked everywhere. So even when I was a teenager, I'd think nothing of you know walking ten miles. I lived in. Um, northern Liverpool and then Southport in Merseyside, where it's you know completely flat. But there's a whole like everything east of Southport is this flat farmland with a couple of dead railway lines that are now footpaths and country lanes. So it's a it's easy just to get out the house and walk into the middle of the countryside and then just walk down a dead railway line for like ten miles. Um, so I've always done that. I've always done the, the walking um, and hiking was thing. there a point then when you realized that hey walking and hiking is an actual hobby you know like for instance with long distance hiking um there probably was but i don't remember when because i've always kind of associated it it was one of those cases of you know when i was growing up i would only ever do day hikes but i'd still be doing them i'd still be walking them um so the idea of then taking a tent and making it a two-day hike was always in my mind to do. I just never did because I guess I just wasn't convenient or I just had better things to do. Not better things to do, but, you know, in my mind, I had other things I could be doing. Um, so it was always one of those things that was, I should do this at some point. And then eventually did, but it was, a you know, several years later than I didn't anticipated. I had been for hikes before that though like on some of my um trips abroad so in i went to vanuatu for 28 days and there were two instances in vanuatu where we where i hiked across an island with a tour guide it has to be said or with well, tour guide one of the locals from the island uh in an organized trip but so one of them we hiked across an island called uh malakula that was through a rainforest effectively and that was one night in a village hut, one night in a very small village, um, and then back. And then a week or two later, I hiked across an island called Ambrim, which is dry, dusty. It's two volcanoes, and that's it. Two volcanoes and no oh, wow. rivers. So I hiked three days across there, including two nights in a tent at the... It's not really the base of the volcano. It's kind of like on the, the lava plain. So you could see when it when it got dark, you could see the flames and the smoke from the two volcanoes. It was really impressive, really nice. Um, so that was in a tent. What is it then about? Because there's obviously so many different ways of traveling and experiencing the world. What is it in particular about sort of moving on foot and hiking um, particularly multi-day hiking that kind of captures your attempt, your, your your imagination? Um, there's a couple of things. One of them is um, literally I can see it at my own pace. So it's not like I'm beholden to, you know, a train track timetable or a bus driver or, you know, even a friend in a car. I can literally stop and go, ooh, that's a really nice view. Let's stop here for a few minutes. Um, or in Becky's case, that's a really nice flower. Let's stop and take a picture of it in five minutes and then take another one three minutes later. That's the same flower. Yeah, I know, but I like flowers. <laughs> anyway, um, this isn't a rant about Becky. Um, <laughs> that was it. a great hike. That was a great hike. Um, but 
Um, yeah, no, it, it's like I can go at my own pace. I can see what I want to see in my own time. And also, I can see things that I wouldn't be able to see in any other way. So I did a couple of hikes in Orkney and the Outer Hebrides along cliff tops that you can't get to any other way other than by hiking for about six hours. And, you know, sort of standing there and there's nobody around except like 10,000 birds. Um, and you sort of look over the cliffs and go, I don't want to get too near to that because there's no fence. But this is a spectacular view. And then you go down a dip and go, oh, this is different. Oh, there's a rock stack there. And then you go sort of over a little brook and then up a hill and you go, oh, that's a great vista looking out over the rest of the island. Um, you can't get that any other way. You can't get those experiences without literally hiking with a backpack and setting up a tent mm. somewhere. Um, I mean, those when, when me and Becky hiked across Great Britain, the last few days were spectacular because we, you know, we were, we hiked by the, we, we camped up by the side of a lock and there's nothing, you can't do that if you're, you, you spend like 300 pound a night on a Riverside lock hotel or something, but I don't have 300 pound to spend on night. So, you know, setting up a tent and just seeing the sunset over the lock and things like that. And then we camped in a forest and we camped on a sandy beach where the sand squeaked when you walked on it. And so what's the story then? Because that um, kind of to that. What's the story about hiking across Great Britain with Becky? Um, whose great idea was that? And kind of how did it come about and how did it go? Share <laughs> some details. Um, it was it was mine. Uh, I'd always, in my head, because I'd like hiking and like walking and like exploring the country because a lot of I hang around on travel Twitter a lot with, you know, people that travel halfway across the world to see something interesting. And I'm going, yeah, you can definitely see something interesting if you travel halfway around the world. But remember, people are traveling halfway around the world to see something interesting that's 20 minutes from you. <clears throat> yeah. So that's a good point. There's always... Yeah, there's always things everywhere. Everywhere is interesting. And there's always things near to your hometown, near to, you know, in your home region that are worth visiting if you realize that they're there. And an extension from that is let's walk across the country because why not? Because that's a good way of seeing the country. And most people who do this do Land's End to John O'Groats. And yeah, I figured... Good. So you did it differently. I think that's a bit boring. Yeah, comes that's a no bit surprise. boring. And also, <laughs> also, <laughs> also, um, I'm a bit of a nerd. So I figure Land's End is not the southernmost point or the westernmost point of Great Britain. John O'Groats is not the northernmost point or the easternmost point of Great Britain. So why not hike between two points that are? And I realised that no one had ever gone, or at least, well, people probably have, but it's certainly not as popular. The When we were doing research, we found a cyclist that had done it, but there was very few people who'd, who'd ever hiked it. Let's hike from the furthest westerly point to the furthest easterly point. That was my plan. Okay. Um, because no one no one had ever really done it, and there we go. Um, I brought Becky in because um, that's just the sensible thing not to do it on your own, especially when you're someone like me. Um, and I basically I met her in a pub. And my my phrase, my first words to her was, have you ever thought about doing a long distance hike? And she said, well, I've, I wanted to do Land's End to John O'Groats. And I said, hold that thought. I have a better idea. Um, <laughs> and then about within the next three hours, we kind of 
Becky had kind of planned up the whole thing. Um, so that's where that's basically where it came from. I have to give a shout out to um, the Yes Tribe, um, oh, a yeah. highly motivated organisation, because I'd had this idea in my head for a while, and then I went to the Yesterville in October 2018, surrounded by lots of very motivated people who were doing all fantastic things, and it kind of gave me the inspiration to go, yeah, I can do this as well. So it was immediately after that that I spoke to Becky, and then, hey, presto. And the reason we did it east to west rather than west to east, as my original plan was, was partly because Becky thought it would be better to start off in lower stoft because a it's easier to get to b ending in the scottish highlands at a lighthouse in the middle of nowhere is probably quite apt uh, c it meant the first couple of weeks were really easy bearing in mind we were still getting used to the hiking getting used to the backpacks um, but also and i hadn't appreciated this if you go east to west you're also going north because the easterly point is at lowest oft in Suffolk and the westerly point is Ardnamurchan, halfway up Scotland. If you're going north in summer, it means that the sun is always behind you. Whereas if you're going from west to east, or in fact from John O'Groats to Land's End, you're going to be looking into the sun for the vast amount of the day. Hmm. Hmm. So it just makes it so, a more comfortable yeah. journey. Yeah, for sure. That seems very logical. So how long did it take you both to do that particular walk then? 57 days, which was about three weeks shorter than we had originally planned and expected. Um, we took fewer rest days than we intended and we walked quicker than we intended. Okay. And you obviously camped along the way, I'm assuming the whole, the mm -hmm. whole way of that. Okay. And was that the kind of yep. first major kind of multi week longest hike you'd ever done of that nature then yeah i mean previously my longest hike had been three days in vanuatu so this was by far longer than that it was also the longest hike she'd ever done um uh, but one of the things when she was planning the trip she made sure that well we between us made sure that we did m the vast majority of it on footpaths rather than on roads and also there were certain footpaths that she said we need to do and I'm not doing it if we don't, including the Pennine Way and the West Highland Way. Um, how did you feel about were, knowing that you sort of would like to steer away, particularly the West Highland Way, I guess is probably not on your bucket list of, of trails because it's quite a busy, popular one. It's quite a nice trail, actually. Um, we basically ran it. We did it in about three and a half, four and a half days. Um, and there was a point towards the end, um, leaving, what's that place called? Kinlochleven, is it Kinlochleven? Um, just before you hit the, um, Glen Nevis and there's a huge hill, very steep hill, um, where lots of people and uh, literally lots of people were struggling up it with small day packs. I basically ran it with a 20 kilogram backpack. Uh, because by that point I was so used to it yeah, and we were, yeah, we were so in shape. I had to buy new trousers in Peebles because they were falling right. off. Um, 5,500 calories a day. They said, wow, there's no way I was really? getting in. Despite all the beer I was drinking, there was no way we were getting anywhere near that. Um, no. I never want to see any more couscous in my life, but yes. So 
Yeah, uh, the Pennine Way is actually quite a good path because although it's very popular, it's also very long. So the chances of you actually meeting people that often are quite small, even though we ended up hiking in the same pattern as a, a few people. We weren't necessarily hiking at the same time in the same place. So we just end up seeing a lot of people at the, the same points at the end of the day. And some of the Pennine Way is very, very, very remote. Yeah, yeah. And how did you find, because as you say, you like to travel alone. How did you find having that experience with some shared with somebody else for, for that amount of time? The way we saw it was that we weren't two people hiking across the country. We were one person hiking across the country that just happened to be doing it at the same time as the other person hiking across the country. So one of the things that we made very clear to each other at the start, and we were fairly very happy with this, was that we didn't need to be spending all of our time together. So if we were hiking at different paces, that was fine. If we even wanted to camp or sleep in different places that night, that was fine. We both had easy ways of contacting each other. We had both had um, maps and um, direction indicators. So we weren't stuck with each other all the time, which means that the times that we'd spent with each other were actually really nice because... You know, it was it was just nice to be with a friend for a while, and then it was nice to be on our own for a while, and then nice to be with a friend again. I think that's a really, really refreshing way of looking at it. Because one thing I always struggle with when somebody says, "Oh, do you want to go for a hike?" I'm like, "Yeah, like I'd love to," um, but after two hours of talking to you, I really want to walk on my own. But there's a kind of expectation if you go on a hike with somebody. You know, let's say your your average sort of day hike, for example, takes you know three to six hours. I can't hold down three to six hours of conversation without wanting to like, you know, just walk in the other direction. I, 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 li I like hanging around people, but I have a limit. And I think setting those healthy boundaries is really, really refreshing to know that kind of you did that between the two of you. It's I mean, we, we knew we'd be spending that long in each other's company. So we also yeah. knew that we would kill each other. <laughs> yeah. Or no, actually, she'd kill me. <laughs> Let's be honest right. about this. Um I mean, also, she was going to save me from killing myself um, accidentally because those cliffs, mm. very steep. Me, don't know where they are. Mm. There was, the, only, the only point where she was actually fearful of was in Nottingham where I nearly got hit by a car because I crossed the road and didn't look, or did look, but didn't notice the car that was about to hit me that then had to slam on its brakes. Right. <laughs> but you were okay. It was good, it was good. It's good that um, Becky was there then. Yes. Fascinating. And... On the back of that, you have continued to do long distance trails in and around the UK. Um, yes. And and I've got a couple I want to do as well. So right. at some point, uh, one of the paths that we went on in Lowland Scotland for a day and a half was the Southern Upland Way. And then we turned off it to head north along the cross-border drove road. But my time on the Southern Upland Way, I thought was absolutely a great path going through some lovely scenery. And I felt really at home on it. So I would like to do the Southern Upland Way in total, I, I had planned it for a, a year or two ago, but it didn't happen. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen this year, but I'm hopeful it's going to happen next year. What for you then constitutes as a, I'm going to start wrapping up in a minute because I keep on going. So I think we're going to have to get you in for a second. Um, but what for you constitutes as a, uh, a good long distance path that you kind of want to walk? What, what's like the, the key features of somewhere for you? Like, oh, I'm guessing good history is one of them. Is there anything else? Yes. Yes. Good history, good scenery. I'm particularly fond of forests, mm. actually. Um, 
and the occasional little town to pass through and, and, and stop in. Um, I mean, the Pennine Way would be a really good path if it weren't for the fact that it goes up to the top of hills rather than around them. And it's not the straightest route in the world. Um, but I mean, some of the some of the bit. I mean, one of the days we had on the Pennine Way from Middleton to Dufton was absolutely stunning. Uh, you know, three waterfalls and then a huge hike hike up Nick's, the huge view out over the Lake District is absolutely brilliant on a on a really nice day. My issue with the Pennine Way was that we spent the first five days of it basically in torrential rain, and those first five days were over the Peak District bits where it's very bleak and. Saddleworth Moor is not a nice place to be when it when your visibility is about ten feet. I can imagine. Yeah, um, most moorlands are pretty bleak places to be in the best of days. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Well, what I, I I really really want to continue talking about barefoot walking. Given the name, I'm I'm somewhat disappointed in myself that I have not done that. However, I will openly ask you here on this podcast. Invite me back. Recording, would Would you come back for another episode so we can talk about that amongst other things? Because um, we haven't ticked off uh, barefoot, yes. barefoot backpacking, and we haven't ticked off beer, and there's other subjects still that I'd like to talk about, including more long distance hiking, more trails. Um, so it'd be fantastic to have you back on the show in the next couple of months if you're if you're keen for that. That'd be grand. Amazing. Fantastic. It would be it would be so, it would be absolutely fantastic too. I'm always happy to talk about these things. Brilliant. That sounds good to me. Um and you wouldn't have enough time. As soon as I started as soon as I started researching, I was like, no, this ain't gonna fit into an hour. Uh, I was totally right. Um, I've still I've not you, finished I my notes you. yet. And I've not finished my follow up my follow up <laughs> questions that I've been uh, jotting down as well. So um <clears throat> I mean beer beer's a beer's a really interesting one because that was basically what was fueling me for the first oh, half of the I, I uh, love hiking across Great I, Britain. I, 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 I think when somebody says they're into beer, I straight away know that you mean uh, craft beer and local distilleries and all of those wonderful uh, kind of small independent businesses that, you know, cropping up everywhere. And this amazing scene we have at home and is emerging abroad as well. And I really want to go into that because I find it super interesting. So we're going to save that for later. And in particular, walking barefoot is something that really interests me um, as somebody who has uh, but at least I don't walk barefoot, but I wear sort of fancy barefoot shoes. And that's mm-hmm. been for me, you know, a, a game changer in terms of like health. Um, and I also yep. want to talk to you about mental health as well, uh, touching mm-hmm. on that. So there's a few subjects to go on in the future. That is a teaser for uh, anyone listening for the next time we talk. <laughs> However, um, I'm going to wrap it up for now. So where can um, anybody listening find out more about yourself on the, the World Wide Web? If you generally search for Barefoot Backpacker, you'll probably find me. I'm most active on Twitter at the moment um, under the handle of RTW Barefoot. I also have a website at barefoot-backpacker.com and a podcast called Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. It is. um, So I've enjoyed listening to that podcast on my journeys to and from work over the last few days. Um, I really enjoy it. If if you find my podcast, if you listen to this and you find my podcast a little bit all over the place and a little bit sort of hit and miss in terms of the quality, then what I enjoyed about your podcast is really well produced and you you script it, um, if I'm Correct, yes. to yeah. So, um, and I thought that was a really nice, refreshing change, and it was made it a bit different um, and a lot more polished than than mine. And I really enjoyed it. So, fantastic! Thank you for 
joining me today. Um, we will carry on this conversation again soon. Look forward to it. All right. See you later. See ya. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.